All right. Hello, everyone. Um, so before we begin, um, we're going to have our reading in a second, but I just want to sort of do a bit of a look into the context that this parable is sitting in, because the time and the place that it was spoken actually changes a lot to how we would read it today and how we would understand it. So it's sort of important to get an idea of how the original hearers understood it at the time. Um, so this event takes place a couple of days after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If you remember a few weeks back, we looked at that event when Jesus rides in on the donkey and all his disciples are cheering and singing around. And that was the time when Jesus very boldly claimed to be the Messiah. And if you remember, that annoyed all the leaders and everyone knew what was going on. It was very obvious what he was saying. And then we sort of, that week we fast forwarded to the point of his crucifixion, you know, a week or so later. So I'm just going to focus on a couple of events that happen between the triumphal entry and this parable. Uh, there we are. So, yep, we have the triumphal entry. Then after that, he goes into the temple, and you probably heard the story, kicks out all the traders that are working in there. So it causes a big scene. People are not too impressed about that. Um, then the leaders, yeah, not very happy. They seek to destroy him. So this is in Luke chapter 19. And then it says that he teaches daily at the temple. This is probably for two or three days. And then there's this conversation with the leaders that's recorded in, at the start of Luke chapter 20 in our parables early in Luke chapter 20. So this conversation happens just before our parable. And I think we touched on it last time. They're, they're saying, by what authority do you do these things? So they're saying, Jesus, you know, you've kicked everyone out of the temple. You're teaching, saying all these crazy things that you're Messiah. By what authority are you doing this? And he responds by asking them, you know, by what authority did John the Baptist come? And they didn't want to answer that. And so his response was, neither will I answer you. So that's the conversation that's happened just before this parable. So he says, I'm not going to answer you, but I will tell you a story. And this is the story that he tells in response to them. And in a way, it's sort of, it, it kind of does hint at answering that question indirectly and with a bit of hindsight, but at the time, maybe not. Um, so with all that background, we'll get Amber up for our reading. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. When the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When, pe- when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Thank you. All right, so... Last week, Graham suggests that the parable title probably needed a bit of changing to change the focus of what it was about. Um, and that for his one, the focus wasn't really on the workers, it was on the guy that was hiring them. 
And that's probably similar in this one too. It's often called the parable of the wicked tenants or the wicked fine dresses. Uh, but it's actually the surprising part at first glance is these guys, but at second glance and paying a bit more attention to it, it's the owner that's the weird one. Um, and his reactions just, yeah, they don't make a lot of sense, at least to begin with. So we're going to run through the first part. Um, so this is pretty straightforward. Um, a guy owns a vineyard, and essentially he's rented out his land with the agreement that the tenants would give him a share of the harvest, so pretty standard kind of agreement. And the owner is now sending his servants to his vineyard, the vineyard that he owns, and he's asking the tenants that have rented it for his share of the fruit. And we heard how that went. His messengers kept getting beaten up and rejected, sent away empty-handed. So that part makes pretty much sense. Um, But this is the weird bit. The owner of the vineyard then said, what shall I do? And I don't know about you guys, but if I was in his position, my first response would probably be, you know, like contact the authorities, the police. Um, These guys have assaulted my workers, broken the contract, stolen my share of the harvest. And I probably would have done this like after messenger one got beaten up and rejected rather than wait for three. (laughs) But that would be my response. Um, And maybe if I didn't have any luck with the authorities, then my next thought and maybe I shouldn't say this in church, would be to round up some of my scary-looking mates and pay him a visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. maybe I would send my mum and her friends. <laughs> um, well, it sounds like the vineyard owner is probably pretty wealthy, so maybe he could have hired some mercenaries or you know, hired some people to go send them over and deal to them. So maybe that's not a good response, but it would make for a, probably a much more realistic and believable story, wouldn't it? That's what we'd expect to happen. So I'm sometimes guilty of approaching the Bible in a bit of a cold, analytical way and not really getting too sort of touchy-feely about it. Maybe I'm not spending enough time sort of focusing on, on how, it, how it would be at the time. And, and even though parables are a good way of making these ideas more relatable, they're still a bit hypothetical for me. So the analogy that Graham shared the last couple of weeks was about the parables being a house that we're invited to take up residence in, to spend time in, and as we do, we look around and we see more. What I found when I had this story rolling around in my head for a little while was that I was getting more and more annoyed about it, and maybe relating to it a bit too personally. So what I mean by that is, we can read this sort of in a cold hypothetical story, but I'm going to sort of push your emotions a bit and make this a little bit more real for us. So most of you will probably know Don Corbin, Graham's dad. I don't know if this is still the deal, but I think he used to lease out some paddocks to a nearby farmer to graze his sheep. Does that sound right? right so I don't quite know what the deal he had with the neighbour was, but let's just say it's something like, you can graze your sheep in my fields and at Christmas time you give me three sheep for dinner. Sounds like a good straightforward deal. So what if we were chatting with Don and he was telling us, you know, what, we're saying, oh, what's going on, Don? And he said, oh, you know, having some trouble with the neighbour. He beat up a couple of my guys when I was... You know, trying to get my end of the deal. If, if we heard that with someone we know, we wouldn't just sort of, you know, oh, that's, that sucks, move on. You know, we'd, we'd be really annoyed about that, wouldn't we? And if Don sort of shrugged it off and said, oh, you know, I'm not going to deal with the cops, and you know, we'll just let it go. Like, I, I don't know about you guys, but I wouldn't be okay with that. That would really fire me up. So it's kind of, yeah, the reaction of the vineyard owner in this case, it, it doesn't make sense, but it's it's sort of, it's too good that it's not good enough, if that makes sense. He's being too nice for his own good, that he's putting himself out and 
We don't tend to like that unless we're on the receiving end of it. So what's, what's going on there? We don't really have an English word that's good enough to describe this quality that's expressed here. But in Greek, that word is... Oh, nope, we'll read this bit first. Um, so what, what does he decide to do? He decides that he will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. So what's going on there? This, this is a Greek word called, and I'm not going to try and pronounce it right, macrothemia, literally meaning he puts his anger far away. So in English, we don't really have a word for that, but it would be things like perseverance, patience, long-suffering, risk-taking, compassion, self-emptying, slowness and avenging wrongs. You sort of get the flavour of that, right? Like he's putting himself out. So these are used in situations where we think that someone's being too noble or too virtuous for their own good, that it's unfair to the person expressing this characteristic. Our response when we see someone doing this is often outrage. You know, why didn't you react how you should have? You're letting them get away with too much, or they need to be taught a lesson. So Kenneth Bailey shares this story, and I couldn't track down whether or not it's true, but regardless of that, it's, it's a good parallel that, that brings the point across. This is a story about uh, the previous king of Jordan, um, King Hussein, who must have been the first, I guess, if there's now a second, is that right? Anyway, so I couldn't verify if it was true, but let's, let's hear how it goes. So one night in the early 1980s, the king was informed by his security police that a group of about 75 army officers were meeting at that very moment in a nearby barracks, plotting a military overthrow of his kingdom. The officers requested permission to surround the building and arrest the plotters. The king refused and said, bring me a small helicopter. He got in, just him and the pilot, and flew to the barracks and landed on the roof. The king told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, fly away at once without me. So unarmed, the king walked down the stairs and appeared in the room where the plotters were meeting and quietly said to them, Gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalise your plans to overthrow the government, take over the country and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart and the country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die there is no need for this. Here I am, kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. So after a long moment of stunned silence, the rebels rushed forward to kiss his rings and his hands and feet and pledged loyalty to him for her life. So the king opted for total vulnerability. He acted nobly and by doing so, he fanned into flame the dying embers of the rebels' sense of honour. So with that in mind, you can kind of understand what was going through the head of this vineyard owner. In this phrase, perhaps they will respect him. Um, in a lot of Arabic translations, it's translated literally through a different way, um, and it literally means perhaps they will feel shame in his presence. Perhaps my act of total nobility and vulnerability will help them to see their response as being so ridiculous that they will feel shame in my presence. Perhaps they will be moved in compassion that he was willing to take that risk. So both those stories, the king and the vineyard owner, the response is that they would hope the violent men opposing them will will sense that nobility in their actions and respond with compassion. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Not the response he was going for. 
So the owner took a risk. He was gracious, vulnerable, and it was taken advantage of. It didn't get the response of shame or respect he was hoping. So according to the Talmud, if three years went by and no one laid claim to the land, it reverted to those who were working the land. So what's probably going through their mind is the son's arrived, not the father. Maybe the father's dead and this is, this is the heir coming because he's now in control. But if we, if we kill him, there's no one else that can make claim to this land. It will be ours. So that's probably what's going through their head at the time. Not that that makes it okay, but just so you can see what's going on there. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So here we see Jesus asking that question, and he often does these sort of rhetorical questions when the answer is so obvious that you know, no one actually needs to speak up and no one's going to disagree with it. And when we, we see this response that Jesus says, we think, finally, some justice. At least they got what they deserve. You know, pity it didn't happen sooner. Maybe I shouldn't speak for, for all of us, but that's, that's what I think anyway. And so here we have our, the natural human desire meant for justice or revenge or you know, whatever we want to call it. It's the sort of outcome to that story that we'd expect most people would be satisfied with. We'd wish that the middle bit and the start didn't have to be there for this to happen, but we couldn't think of a, a better outcome given all the previous information we had. Um, but, but when we keep reading how the listeners heard this, their response wasn't, wasn't that. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. They're saying, no way. That's, that, this is literally a, a negative amen. You know, so be it not. They're, they're appalled at this, this outcome. So just as the characters in the story start acting in a way that seems fitting, concluding in justice or payback and violence towards the bad guys in the story, we expect the response would be cheering, or at the very least a sigh of relief. But the emotional reaction we see from them is the complete opposite. They're outraged. So this is the second unusual part of the story, the first being the response of the vineyard owner, these two gracious, you know, he should have been violent much earlier on, in my opinion. So the first part was the graciousness of the owner, the second part the outrage at what we think should be a, a good enough ending at least. Um, so the listeners, they're hearing something that's very different to what we're hearing. We're so far removed from the imagery of their time and what was going on. And so I want to just dig into a couple of Old Testament passages that will add a bit of colour to this and hopefully help us to see what they're seeing. So this is um, reading in Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted, planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. 
So this is a song of the vineyard, and this the vineyard represents Israel. This passage was used as a warning and prophetic of when Israel was sent into captivity all that time ago in the past. And it pops up this imagery a few times in the Old Testament when Israel is represented as a vineyard of the Lord. Jeremiah 5.21 I have planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Psalm 80 You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. So the Psalms and the prophets repeatedly use this language of a vineyard to represent Israel in the eyes of the Lord. Israel is God's vineyard. So now comparing that with the parable that Jesus said, in Isaiah and the prophets, their focus is on the vineyard. The vineyard's the one that's getting stomped on in trouble for its rebelliousness. But if you pay attention to Jesus, he's not slamming the vineyard. He's slamming the ones who are meant to be looking after the vineyard, the vine dressers or the tenants of the vineyard. So, yeah, um, notice that the, the difference was in the Old Testament, he was saying, what more could have been done for my vineyard? Jesus doesn't focus on that, but on the tenants. The parable of the wicked tenants or wicked vine dressers, these were the people that were meant to look after the vineyard, to prune and protect it, to make sure it gives good fruit. Just as the leaders of Israel were meant to lead by example, to turn Israel into a light for all nations, to live justly, to bring people into relationship with God. But for the most part, they were a hindrance to their people and a barrier between them and God. So when Jesus is speaking this parable, his audience was made up a lot of, of a lot of these religious leaders. They were, they were paying close attention to him at this time, hoping that he'd slip up and they'd, they'd find a way to arrest him. So that's his audience. So if we fast forward back, um, this is jumping a few verses in our parable to the, to the very end of it. This is when he finishes up. The, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So they knew that he was taking a dig at them. That, that's how they heard this. So no wonder they were outraged, you know. So this changes the flavour of the situation a bit, doesn't it? So even though we miss it at first glance, the leaders actually got that message, and you know, their response shows us that they knew what, that Jesus was having a dig at them. So you can imagine when Jesus says those lines, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. You can imagine as he's saying this, he, he might be gesturing and pointing to the, the leaders standing over that way, you know, and that, that changes the flavour quite a bit. Maybe he didn't actually point, but, yeah, that would have sure felt like it at least. It was like a personal attack on them. So, so Amber did a great job at this reading today, but for the equivalent effect of how they would have heard it, it would have been as if Amber had been performing miracles for the last three years, claimed to be God's messenger, proved that the prophets spoke about her coming, publicly told everyone that the church leaders are corrupt on, on many occasions, and then while speaking this parable to us today, she pointed at the church elders while implying that God's going to judge them and bring in new leaders to look after his people. That's quite a different story, right? <laughs> So back to our reading. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which it is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone who falls on whom it falls will be crushed. So they're horrified that the vineyard owner would destroy the tenants because of their actions. And now Jesus switches the imagery from farming and vineyards to a building. And he's quoting from Psalm 118. And this is the same psalm that the disciples were singing at the triumphal entry when he was writing in. This is the messianic psalm that everyone knew that he was claiming to be the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for. So it's from that same psalm. And it speaks of a stone that gets looked over as if not being fit for the task. Then it ends up being the cornerstone, the most important part of the building. They didn't build with timber frames like we do here. It's all, not many trees over there, so it's all stone. The cornerstone was the important part. So Jesus is combining two things. In his parable, we have the rejected son, and then now we have the rejected stone from the psalm. So the rejected stone, the rejected messianic figure, the rejected son of the vineyard owner, these are all the same. It's like the story of King David. He was the small shepherd boy that human eyes looked over and he, he wasn't good enough. No one would pick him as the king and the one to build this, this nation on. That's what Jesus is saying. Just like David was looked over with human eyes, I am the one that God will choose to build his kingdom. Well, at the same time, he's also predicting his rejection from men, saying that he's going to be looked over. Isaiah 8.14 has some similar echoes here. and It says that God will become both a sanctuary and a stone of such stumbling and a rock of offence to Israel. So it's going to be a sanctuary and stumbling for the nation. And we won't dive into it today, but technically when, God's, when Jesus is, is hinting at that, he's, he's speaking about a quality of God and applying it to himself. A hint there, it is divinity. But we'll ignore that one for now. This is from the start of Luke, Luke chapter 2. Back when Jesus was born, they took him to the temple to be consecrated. And Simeon said, This child is destined to cause the, the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So this parable is a very short story that covers quite a lot of ground. It's a story of the nation of Israel, past, present, and future. How many prophets had a warm welcome from Israel in the past? We had Isaiah sworn in two, Jeremiah stoned to death, David, Elijah, Amos had to run for their lives, uh, Zechariah murdered in the temple courts. They, they didn't treat their prophets very well. So God sent prophet after prophet, but they were rejected, or as it was worded in our parable, the vineyard owner sent many servants. And then comes Jesus the Messiah to the nation. Or as worded in our parable, the vineyard owner sent his son. And then the story switches to the future, that God will destroy the leaders of that nation and give it to others. And about 40 years after they heard this from Jesus, the temple's destroyed, cities burnt and taken over by the Romans. You can see there's the two levels going on there, that it's, it's both prophetic and telling the history of the nation as well as a dig at the immediate guys and and also just on the surface level of the story itself. There's so many layers that we can look at there. Now, it's a tricky one to sum up this parable. Um, we'll just get the, the music team to come on up. Um, but So we can look at it both the face value level and with the sense 
and with the added understanding of how it was a specific message to the leaders at the time, there seems to be two main things that stand out in both. And the first is grace. We mentioned in the parable, even just as a story with no hidden meaning, that the response of the vineyard owner was of incredible grace, of self-emptying and patience. And that the message of grace is true in the second level of understanding, as a judgment to the leaders at the time. When we read in the Old Testament, grace isn't often the first thing that comes to our mind. But using this parable to represent the big picture of history, it really shows God's patience, long-suffering, and how he's slow to anger. There was about 1,500 years from the time of the covenant that was made with Moses after the Exodus. 1,500 years of mostly rejecting God and his messengers, being hostile to his servants, and after all that time, his response was to send his son, not a response of violence. You hear people say, and, and I do it too, that idea that if I was God, I'd do things differently, I'd do things better. And there's a lot of things I don't get and understand. But this is one of those ones where I feel like if I was God, I wouldn't be that patient. I, I couldn't put up with 1,500 years of that. <laughs> After the first messenger was beaten and rejected, I would have responded pretty angrily. So this is, that's what I'm getting at. God is just showing amazing grace in his responses that he has given to us over the years. And we're very lucky that he doesn't respond how we would. The second thing that stands out is how in all these situations, the key event is how everyone responds to the son. The tenants rejected the son. How different would that story have been if they accepted him, felt shame, and become reconciled to the vineyard owner? The leaders of Israel, how different would history be if they accepted the son and became reconciled to God? And for us, how important it is for us to accept the Son and be reconciled to God.